Well, if you have a Bible, take it and turn to that passage that Joyce just read for us. If you don't have a Bible, then you can take one from the round table in the back. You can get up at any time and go grab it. Uh, you'll want to look at it. That's the sermon on which the teaching is based. We are starting a new series today, and that series will go through Eastertide, where we are going to look at uh, the resurrection accounts, the scenes of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospel of John. So we started that on Easter, and we're going to continue on with that in this first scene on that first Easter night uh, where the disciples are locked away in a room and Jesus appears to them. As we look at this passage, I want to I pray for us. I want to pray for myself. I don't know why. I'm feeling a little scattered and a little tongue-tied. So I'm going to pray, and, uh, and the Spirit's going to work. We're going to depend on him. Lord, we do ask that your spirit would come, that you would be gracious and, and speak in spite of me, through your word, that as you appeared, as you stood in the midst of your disciples that first Easter, you would come and make your dwelling in the midst of us and that we would know your presence and all its saving power and love. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, my brother-in-law, Scott, he really hates being the center of attention. And when I say he hates being the center of attention, I mean he hates being the center of attention, really. So much so that he, he hates birthdays. Like, he hates birthdays. Because birthdays usually mean you're the center of the attention. And it means birthday parties. Well, one day he was in college, and it was his birthday. And he was coming home, and he came back from class he was a little hungry, so he goes into his um, college fridge, he opens it up, and lo and behold, what does he see there but a birthday cake? At that point, he knew his roommates had been scheming to plan a party for him. They obviously did not know him very well in his love language, but Scott did what any sensible person would do when you realize that someone is planning a party for you and a birthday cake in the fridge. He promptly took the birthday cake and hid it in the dryer, and then he locked himself in his room. <laughs> like, seriously. So all these people come over, and they're like, where's the cake? And where's Scott? And what's going on? And they're out there for this party to celebrate, and he is locked away in this room with the birthday cake and the dryer. I hope no one put the dryer on. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because I think it reminds me of this picture of the disciples. I mean, Jesus is risen. It's Easter. They should be out celebrating. And yet they are cloistered away, locked in a room for fear. That Jesus is risen. It's Easter. They should be celebrating. There's a party to be had, and yet they don't know it. And they are locked away in a room, cloistered away. You know, I, I read that story and I wonder how much has really changed. Jesus is risen. The church should be out in the world celebrating. And yet more often than not, we find ourselves in fear, cloistered away behind locked doors. Sure, it's not the same fears that they had. It's not fear of uh, the Jewish authorities. 
But it's fear of the authorities. It's fear of those who have a power to, we believe, condemn us and sentence us to a life of misery and even death. It's fear of bosses and brothers. It's fear of parents and peers. It's fear of, it's fear of, of, of politics and police. It's fear of so many things out there in the world. It's fear of anything and everything that we believe and we give the power to condemn us and to sentence us to a lifetime of misery and even death. And we cloister ourselves away in fear. What did the disciples need in the midst of all their anxiety and fear? What do we need? We need what they got. We need the presence of the risen Christ. Did you see that in verse 19? Jesus shows up and verse 19, John makes it clear that he stood right in their midst. That's where Jesus wants to be, right in the midst of his fearful disciples. And there, his presence changes everything. He comes and he transforms their fear and what he gives them is peace, joy, purpose, and power. He, gives, he comes, the, res, the risen Christ stands in the midst of his disciples, and he gives them peace, joy, purpose, and power. First, let's look at peace. Did, did you notice when Jesus first appears to them, he gives them what would be a traditional greeting. Shalom alchem. Peace be with you. Peace be upon you. We wouldn't think anything of it. It's like, how's it going today? Except for the fact that he repeats it twice. He not only says it in verse 19, he also says it again in verse 21. Now, what's going on there? And, and really, it, it's kind of like when someone comes up to you and they say, how's it going? It's fine. No, really. How's it going? Peace be upon you. No, really. Peace be upon you. But, but there's so many reasons that they should be scared. I mean, you have to think about it. Like, like the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, they just put their leader to death. And now, and now, get this, someone has just walked through the walls. And at this point, they don't know who it is. They don't recognize him yet. I, I, I don't know about you, but I think I'd be a little anxious. I don't know that I would have so much peace. Why should the disciples have peace? Why should not they be more afraid? We know this word, peace, it's the Hebrew word, shalom. Uh, That's the word that that Jews use when they talk about peace or what we translate peace. But but it means a lot more than our word peace. Uh, It means things existing as the way they ought to be. If you were to ask ask, uh, an ancient Jew, what is the world in its, in, its, in its creative design, functioning as it's supposed to, to function. How would you describe that? They would say shalom. Cornelius Plantiga says that, that shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It means far more than peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, 
wholeness and delight. Shalom or peace is the way things ought to be. And you know, we have not seen that since Genesis 3. Peace. Shalom. And yet, the Bible talks about a time when God would restore shalom. When God would bring back universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. When justice, fulfillment, and delight, and right relationships between people and God, and people and the creation, and people and themselves, and people and other people, when, when those would function properly and perfectly. And, and when the prophets talked about this day that would come, they said, it's going to be so transformative that we might as well call it a new creation. You know, it's interesting in John's resurrection accounts how there's all these allusions to the creation story. Did you notice that it's the first day of the week when the disciples go to the tomb? And when do they go to the tomb? When there's deep darkness over the earth. Like Genesis 1.1. And then what we find is on the sixth day, on the sixth day, God on the cross breathes out. His last. On the seventh day, he rested. He rested in the tomb. But then, then we have the first day, the first day of the new creation. And on the first day of the new creation, we meet a gardener, like Adam was a gardener in the, new, in the old creation. Universal flourishing and delight is what this garden was supposed to be and picture. And then yet, here is Jesus standing before his disciples. And he says, Peace be upon you. No, really. Peace. Like the kind of peace that was there in Genesis 1-1. Like the kind of peace that's supposed to exist. In other words, I have brought about a new creation and peace is here. John 14, 27 said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. You know, the ones that cause, the one that, the people that are causing the disciples so much anxiety right now, they're the ones who put Jesus to death. And there he is. Do you know what that means? It means that the thing that's causing them the most fear is no match for Jesus. What's causing you the most fear this morning? What makes you want to lock your doors and run away and hide? What is that anxiety-producing thing that, like, like, you just, you have to run from it? Maybe it's your bank account. I've been like that. You, you can't even go online and check it. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your GPA and the final grades coming in. Maybe it's that acceptance or not acceptance letter from college. Whatever it is, I want you to know something. It's no match for Jesus. He brings peace. And everything in your life that you feel like has the potential of disrupting it and undoing it and wreaking havoc upon it. No, he says, I am making all things new, and it's no match for me. Jesus comes to his fearful disciples, and, and he transforms everything. He transforms their fear to peace. He even transforms a common greeting. 
Every one of Paul's letters start off, grace and peace. And you better believe that those words were now chock full, heavy, with new meaning. That's why when believers say to one another, peace, when they pass the peace in the traditional liturgy of the service, it's not just a how's it going. They're saying, no, really, no, really, peace. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and his presence in their midst brings peace. Secondly, the resurrected Christ comes and he brings these disciples joy. Did you notice that in verse 20, these disciples are exceedingly glad. When they finally realize that it's Jesus, they are exceedingly glad. Now, I want you to, I want you to, to stop for a second and realize that that would not be the most obvious reaction. You think, what are you talking about? Jesus rose from the dead. What am I talking about? When's the last time they saw him? When they betrayed him. When they abandoned him. Now, like, if you, if you like, abandoned a friend or betrayed a friend or, uh, or, or did something that you realized wasn't so kind to a person, in fact, maybe even the, the thing that you did had massive consequences in their life, right? And, like, like, turned it to the worst, like, and you saw them again, are you going to be excited, like, extremely excited, rejoicing? No, I would think that you would probably be more, want to run and hide in fear and shame. So why is it that they rejoice? Well, notice, notice that right as Jesus says, peace be with you, When he says, peace be with you, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. And it's then that they're glad. And it's then that they recognize him. It's then that they know that it's the Lord. They don't realize that he's the Lord until they see his hands. I'm the crucified one. But not just any crucified one, his side. I'm your master. I'm your Lord. And not only am I your master and your Lord, when he identifies himself as the crucified one, he's saying to them, he's coming to them, and he's saying, and I am the one who loved you and was crucified for you. And in identifying himself in that way, in the midst of his disciples, that's why they rejoice. Because he says, he says, I want you to know that the wounds that have brought this peace the battle scars that have brought this peace, they are on my hands and they are on my side and it's all been forgiven. It's done. There's this, uh, there's this band I like called The National and they have this like funny song that makes no sense whatsoever that they sing at the end of all their concerts and everybody joins in singing. And I think everybody joins in singing because it's kind of easy to sing and it's kind of funny. But I think everybody joins in singing because there's this one line that is really understandable and it's this, it's all been forgiven. And I think people want to hear that message and they know they need to hear that message. The basis of that message is these hands in this side where Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, it's done. It's all been forgiven and so they have exceeding joy. And they don't just have exceeding joy because it's all been forgiven, I think. I think they have exceeding joy because he is the crucified one and now he has been brought back from the dead. In other words, he conquered death. What are you looking forward to 
Like ultimately. What does your future entail ultimately? Listen, everybody in here, here's what your future entails. I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and set it out for you. You're going to experience a lot of loss. You're going to experience decay. You're going to experience pain. Your body is going to deteriorate. Your mind is going to start slowly fading away. And, um, and that's just not like your life. Then there's death. But also, what about the world? What about the world at large? Well, there's going to be, um, you know, global warming's happening. Uh, eventually, the resources are going to end up running out. And the reality is, is then uh, the world's going to burn up and be out of ex- into extinction. And then at the end of that, there's nothing left but separation and isolation and loss and loneliness. That's what you have to look forward to. Unless there is a resurrection of the dead. See, death is that ultimate thing that crushes our hopes. That means there is no potential for reconciliation. That means there is no potential for fulfilled dreams. But you see, when death is undone, it means there is a potential for everything to be reconciled. There is a potential for dreams to come true. And they don't have to come true before death, you see, because death has been undone. And so they rejoice. They rejoice because this Jesus, he comes to bring joy. John 16, 22, you have sorrow now, Jesus said, but when I see, I will see you again and your hearts will, will rejoice and listen, and no one, he said, no one will be able to take your joy from you. It will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. I had a friend who worked with um, youth groups and he was a youth director and a particular youth group that he was involved in, they were very, very good at ministering to students, teenagers who were unchurched. And, um, and they went, they had a, a large amount of unchurched teenagers in their youth group. And they took these unchurched teenagers, these folks who, who grew up in, in really hard backgrounds, particularly harsh backgrounds. Some of them had not known love, did not feel like they could be loved or were worthy of love or could ever experience love. One time they took these, these students on this, to this retreat. It was like a camp. And during that retreat, um, the students heard about, about the Son of God who loved them and gave himself for them. Who loved them, about a God who loved them so much that he was willing to, to give his only begotten Son for them. About an eternal life that they could receive just by believing in his name. And at the end of that time, they were given some time to, to reflect on what they had heard, to pray. And one of these students, he, he was from a particularly harsh background. He had been used and abused and didn't think that he could ever feel love. He was completely insecure, and that showed itself in all the ways in which that does when you're a teenager. But that night, he, he met love. And you know what he did? He ran to his cabin and he went through his bags and he found some money. And then he ran to the, he ran to the little convenience store there at the camp and he found a disposable camera and he paid for this little disposable camera. And then you know what he did? He went and he found the nearest bathroom. And he went into the bathroom and he looked in the mirror and he took a picture of himself. 
Because he said, I have never been so happy in my whole life, and I have never felt so much joy. And I want to remember this day forever. But you see, that day is a day that he gets to experience forever and ever and ever because he is loved. And that love will go on, and you are loved, and that love will go on, and that brings deep joy. The risen Christ, he turns their fears to peace. He turns their fears to joy. The resurrected Christ, he also comes and he brings them purpose. You know, last week, Jonathan talked about how the fact that in every, in every, all the gospels and all the resurrection accounts, the response, the immediate response to learning about the resurrection of Jesus is to be sent out in mission. And that's especially true in John's gospel. Remember what happened when Mary sees Jesus, and and, and she recognizes that it's Jesus, and then she clings to him. And then verse 17 says that he says to her, right after she clings to him, stop clinging to me, but go and tell my brothers. Tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. In other words, he says, Mary, stop clinging to me. Now is not the time for uninterrupted worship. Now is the time for mission. I have an assignment for you. Go. Tell my brothers. And here, the disciples, they recognize that it's Jesus. They see his hands and they see his side and they are worshiping. They are rejoicing. They are exceedingly glad. And Jesus says, right after this, I have an assignment for you. Now is not the time for uninterrupted worship. Now is the time for mission. As the Father has sent me, verse 21, even so I am sending you. The most appropriate response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not to cloister away in fear, but it's to go out into the world in love. To celebrate and proclaim what God has done. As commentator Dale Bruner says, this great miracle requires this great mission, immediately and urgently. The most appropriate response for us is not to withdraw from the world in fear, but to go out into it in love. You know, some of you, you struggle with a sense of purpose. I get it. You struggle with that vocationally. You struggle with that in life. And you you think, why am I even here? And what am I here for? And does my life really matter? And is it that significant? And does it have value? Listen, I I, I have news for you. I I don't care what your job is. I don't care if you're single or married. I don't care uh, about any of those things. They do not factor into or change this fact one whit. You have a great purpose. If God has you here, he has called you out from the world to send you back into it For his sake and glory. As the Father sent me, so I have sent you. You have a mission. You have a mission, and that is to go into the world. You are sent into the world as God has sent his son into the world. So here's what you need to know. I don't care if you were born at Cottage Hospital and you grew up here your whole life and have never moved out out of Santa Barbara. If you live in Santa Barbara and you are a Christian, you were sent here. By Jesus Christ. You have been commissioned by him and for him. 
As the Father sent me, so I have sent you. And where, where does the Father send the Son? As the Father sent me, so I have sent Where does the Father send the Son? He sends him into the world, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says. He came and he resided with us. He tabernacled among us. He lived with us, and we are called into the world. The dark world in John, the world that is hostile to God, we are called into that world to love it and to serve it to celebrate the resurrection in its midst. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and he says, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So here's my question for you. What part of this dark world has God sent you into? To be his light. His truth, to celebrate his resurrection, joy, and love in the midst of the darkness. The response to resurrection is not to cloister away in fear, but to go out and love. But it's so easy to cloister away in fear, and we do it, we do it even when we don't recognize we're doing it. We do it simply by filling up our calendars with all sorts of Christian activities and Christian events so that we don't ever have or see or interact with our non-Christian friends and neighbors. God sends us into the world. That's where he wants us to be. I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why? Because he's sending us into the evil places to love them with the love of Christ. Full of grace and full of truth, just as the Father sent the Son, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And why, why did God send the Son? John, I mean, this would be a great study. You should go through, we don't have time to do this this morning, but you should read through the Gospel of John and just ask, what does the Gospel of John say about God sending the Son? How he sent him, why he sent him, where he sent him? It'd be something you could talk about in your community groups. But why did, the, why did the Father send the Son? Well, let's just, let's just go to a couple places. Let's just go to that main place. But we all know. For God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only begotten Son. The, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And God so loved the world that he sent Christians, you and me. That he gave Christians, you and me, into this world. So that whoever believes their message about Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his children into the world to condemn the world. The world stands condemned already. They know it, and there's enough condemnation going around. God did not send his children in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through believing in the Son. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. It's an infinitely valuable purpose. 
We are here to do the works that God has given us to accomplish. Just as Jesus was here to do the works that God gave him to accomplish. John 5, 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father sent me. And why does God send us into the world? To do the works that he has given us to accomplish. And what are those works to do? To testify to the fact that the Father sent the Son. That he loves the world. In John 6, 39, this is the will, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the, of the last day. And this is the will of him who sends us. That we go out, that we go out, that Jesus should lose nothing of all that the Father has given him, but he will raise them up on the last day. Oh, you have a purpose, don't you see? You have a purpose. Now, if you're like me and you read this, though, you think, wait a second, Kyle. I thought this was supposed to bring me peace. As the Father sent me, so I send you. I mean, this task sounds like pretty weighty, so weighty that I get a little anxious. I don't know about you, but I get a little anxious. Like, God is sending me into the world that the world might know him and love him, that the, father, that the son might not lose any that the father has given to him. I'm not sure that, that that brings peace. It kind of brings anxiety, which I think is exactly why right before Jesus says, he, uh, says this, and he gives them this command, he says to them again, verse 21, again, peace be with you. As the father sent me, so I send you. And it's why right after this, when he had said this, verse 22, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Which brings me to my last point. The resurrected son comes and he not only gives us peace and joy and purpose, but he also finally, he gives us power. He gives us the power of his permanent presence. Verse 22 says that when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the spirit. Again, John is alluding to Genesis 2-7 uh, when, when God breathed his spirit into humanity and gave them life and they became a living being and were able to relate to him and to follow him and to love him and to serve him. He's alluding also to Ezekiel 37 when Ezekiel the prophet goes out into a valley of dead bones and then God summons, God calls Ezekiel to send the breath, his breath, his spirit, same word in the Hebrew, into them. And it's not until the spirit comes into them that they actually are able to obey God. You see, the spirit is given that we might Obey God. But it's the spirit of Jesus. It's his powerful presence in us and with us and through us. So what this means, basically, is it means this. That we, the Christians, are not to replace Jesus' mission. But we are a continuation of Jesus' mission. Because Jesus is still on mission in and through us. His presence is with us. There's a story about a um, there's a story about a, a a tribe and they have a coming of age ritual and during that coming of age ritual what they do is they they send all their boys who are like ten or something like that uh, pretty young like out into the jungle 
and they make him sleep there overnight. And it's tremendously frightening because they're hearing all the animals and sounds. Now, I would never make it through this because we have lizards in our backyard that go through the bamboo, and every time I hear the lizard go through the bamboo, it gives me the heebie-jeebies, right? So, like, I don't know. I, I'm, you know, I'm, like, in my late 30s, all right? I mean, I don't know what I would do if I was, like, under 10, and there are lions and, like, cheetahs around, right? And so they, they take them out into, the, into the, the jungle, and I'm sure these boys are just terrified, and it just gets pitch black dark. And they hear all the sounds. And then sometimes, like, they hear the sounds, and then they hear skirmish. They hear wrestling and struggle. And then when morning comes, and the dawn starts to break, they look around, and they see their dads all kneel down 10 yards away from them with spheres that have encircled them. And what those boys realize is that, that they weren't staying out there and they weren't on that mission alone. That their fathers who sent them stayed with them. And they gave him all the resources to protect them and empower them to do this and to make it through the night. When Jesus commissions his disciples for this awesome and weighty task, he gives them his spirit the presence of the risen Christ in them and with them to empower them and encourage them. That's why it is the mission of Jesus himself which, as C.K. Barrett says, through the Spirit is perpetuated in the mission of the church. It follows that in the apostolic mission of the church, the world is confronted by Jesus, the Son of God. It's Jesus ministering in and through his people. And that should be a great comfort. That should bring peace. But it's not just that Jesus gives them the power of his permanent presence. He also gives them the power to communicate his forgiveness. Now, what Jesus says next, many of us, especially in uh, kind of evangelical circles, don't have categories for. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. And I'm going to also say that much of what he says next, um, I think a lot of us have kind of wanted to erase this out of our Bible. But I want you, I'm going to appeal to you as people who love and trust the Bible and who know it to look at the text and think about the text with me. Because I think there's beauty here. Jesus says to his disciples, verse 23, if you forgive any sins, the sins of any, rather, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus tells his disciples that if you, disciples, forgive the sins of any, it is forgiven them. And if you withhold, if you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the way that I communicate my forgiveness to the world is through my church. It's through my people. It's the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew. Jesus only talked about the church two times by name. 
One is Matthew 16. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am giving you the keys of the kingdom so that when you do something on earth, that's the thing that's happening in heaven. Your actions on earth are supposed to mirror what's happening in heaven. To communicate forgiveness to people. Or the lack thereof. It's the same thing in Matthew 18 when Jesus is getting to instructions about church discipline. We always talk about the verses before this. Go to your brother if he sins against you privately. And we talk about the verses after this where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. What we usually don't realize is that they all go together and that he's talking about church discipline. The two or three that are gathered in my name, there I am. It's actually in enacting church discipline because right in the middle he says... If a person, that is a person who sinned against his fellow Christian, refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So what Jesus is saying is, I forgive people of their sins who believe in me. And they need that communicated to them with real words, present words, personal words. And they need that communicated to them personally and tangibly. And I, out of love, have given my church to exercise and communicate that forgiveness to people. This is why there are a lot of things in ministry that I could give up if the Lord were to call me to something else. But there are a couple things that would be devastating to give up. And that is applying water to people's heads and saying, you were forgiven. It's giving them morsels of bread and wine and saying, you are forgiven. It's standing up and raising my hand, authorized by the church and in Christ's power and saying, believer, you are forgiven but it's also having, making that personal by having people come into membership. Having their professions of faith made and saying, yes, we want to communicate to you the forgiveness of Jesus, that you stand in the place of forgiveness. This is the mechanism, membership is the mechanism that God has given us that we use in order to communicate this forgiveness. I don't know how we else we could do it without membership. So if you're not a member of a church and you haven't been accepted into to a church where, where the church actually was able to hear your profession of faith and then say, yes, you stand forgiven. And if the church isn't able to say vice versa, uh, your profession of faith, it doesn't look like is clear. And we want to make sure that it's clear because we want you to know that you are in a place of forgiveness. If you haven't had that happen, then you're missing the love and grace of God because he wants, to, he, wants, he wants to communicate to you personally. He wants someone to say your name and hear your profession of faith. And he wants the church authorized by him to say, we want to communicate to you personally based on your profession of faith, the forgiveness of Jesus, that you have life in his name.
don't deny yourself that. Don't deny yourself that grace. But come. Come. And maybe you're not ready to make a profession of faith. We are not here to keep anybody out. We're here to bring people in. And so we want to take you on that journey and get you to that place. In love. This is the power that God has given to his church. The resurrected Christ, he comes and he stands in our midst and he gives us joy and peace and purpose and power and it's all to wipe away our fears and anxieties. I was talking to one, one member once, moved away, but he couldn't sleep at night for like months. And he kept having these, these dreams and these feelings that he was, he was not accepted by God and Jesus Christ and he was not a Christian and his sins weren't forgiven. And no amount of reading or him telling himself that it was true that he was a Christian whatever, would help. And finally I looked at him and I just said, look, You, you have had people authorized by Jesus Christ listen to your profession of faith. And they say, you are a Christian. And they say, get up out of your seat and come to this table. And they say, know that as real as that bread is in your mouth and as real as that wine is in, on your tongue, so real is the Lord's love and his forgiveness to you. And God is communicating to you that tangibly and really and it doesn't matter about your dreams or your feelings. And it changed him. Through that, he was able to receive God's love. And he hadn't had those dreams anymore. It was Jesus' grace to him. Receive that grace, or prepare to receive that grace as we come to this table and God communicates to you through his church really and tangibly that he loves you and he gave himself for you. Amen.